I haven't met most of you. My name's Karen Smith, and my husband, Don Sweetkind, and I recently joined the Beer Talks planning team. So you may have seen us around the last couple of months. And unfortunately, Whitney had a concert to go to at Red Rocks, so I know. So she's not here to, and I'm going to fill in and be the master of ceremonies tonight. So I want to start off first with... um, Welcoming everybody, and for those of you who haven't been here before, we'll just quickly run down on the process. We'll do some introductions, and then our speaker will talk for about 20 to 25 minutes. Then we'll take a break, and you can get something more to drink, and then we'll come back and do questions and answers and wrap up and be out of here by 8 o'clock. And uh, Whitney always starts off with some appreciations and thank yous, so we want to thank the Windy Saddle. And I apologize to people that we ran out of food tonight. So for those of you who didn't get dinner and aren't getting much to eat, I'm I'm really sorry about that. Um, We'll have to plan better in the future. There are some some things in the counter, in the cabinet there. Um, And then secondly, we always thank uh, GoldenToday.com, Barb Warden, for the publicity and for managing the Golden Beer Talks website. And then I want to thank Holiday, which is our brewery this week, this month. And yeah, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to the beer ambassador, Frank. All right. Well, thank you all very much for coming. Um, you know, uh, October is going to be our five-year anniversary. So we'll be starting our sixth year uh, come October. So. Thank you all for coming. Nice, nice turnout. And yes, this month's uh, featured brewery is Holiday up north of town at 801 Brickyard Circle, Unit B. And um, Holiday is a dedicated gluten-free brewery. And they opened in February 2016. You heard about it here, <laughs> uh, probably in March or maybe in February. And um, when they opened, they were the fifth dedicated gluten-free brewery in the country. They're now one of eight. But they're still the only one in Colorado. So everything they make is absolutely gluten-free. And they're using um, uh, buckwheat and millet and rice at times. So those are the gluten-free grains that they're using. They're going through a big expansion. And so they're working on a 10,000-square-foot building that's basically kind of kitty-corner from where they are. You could pretty much throw a stone. I was going to actually try throwing a stone from one... you know, from where their door is over to their lot that's all torn up, you know, and they've got yellow iron out there. And then I realized, yeah, if if I fall a little bit short, I'm going to probably break someone's windshield on their car. So I'm pretty sure you could throw a stone there, but I haven't actually done it. So it's, it's really very close to their tap house, and the tap house will continue on after that opens, and that's going to be strictly for distribution, the uh, new uh, 10,000 square foot facility, and ultimately that's going to be 20,000 barrels a year. So quite an expansion. Um, let me see here. They're currently distributing with cans to over 250 locations in the Denver metro area, including Coors Field, Broncos Stadium at Mile High, and Folsom Field at the University of Colorado. And their distribution continues to grow, and they're probably going to start going out of state. It's all strictly within state, so the 250 locations are all in Colorado. And when their expansion is done, they'll probably start doing some out-of-state shipping. Uh, They've been uh, running a canning line for a little over a year, and right now they're canning their favorite blonde, Fat Randy's IPA, which was uh, voted the second most popular gluten-free beer in the United States. 
and I was in USA Today. So that's available in cans. They're also canning Riva Stout, Buckwit Belgian, and starting on Monday, they're going to be canning Patchy Waters Pumpkin Ale, which is the first ever gluten-free pumpkin beer available in a can. And they're, they're, going to, they're going to tap that beer Friday. So I think they're going to have it available in the tap house, you know, all weekend, and then they're going to start canning it on Monday. I might, I might have some of those details wrong. It is the world's first ever gluten-free pumpkin beer in a can. <laughs> and when I was there last night picking up the beer, there was a bunch of people all huddled around a table, and then after a little bit, uh, as I was sampling the beers, because I'd picked out two beers, and then it turned out they didn't have enough of the one, so I had to you know, test a few more beers to come up with our second beer tonight. And so as I, as I was trying the beers, it was clear that these people were taking a test. And I, and I thought, well, what, what's going on here? And so I wound up talking with Jonathan Noller from the Colorado Licensed Beverage Association. And so they were getting uh, responsible vendor training last night for their servers there. So they had like seven or eight of their servers that were getting responsible vendor training, which is not a required thing from the state but it's an optional training that they did. And, you know, everyone seemed to be really getting along well, and afterwards, after they all took the test, and I guess they all passed, they were then having beer, which kind of makes sense if you're working in a brewery. But um, I, I thought it was uh, interesting that they were doing this responsible vendor training. You know, so it's for things like identifying fake IDs, you know, spotting people that are too young. That isn't me. Um, people that are inebriated and shouldn't have another beer. And I just thought it was, uh, I don't know, I, when I go in there, I feel like they're kind of uh, a little bit like family. I mean, it, it's a very friendly feel in Holiday So, And I just thought that was part and parcel of the whole thing, to try to do their job well. So with that, uh, Holiday Brewing, uh, I hope you like the beers. I thought this Apricot Blonde, and I, I failed to actually put the full name up. It's Wild Child Apricot Blonde. And I, I thought it was, you know, a nice, light, summery beer. It wasn't uh, excessively apricot you know, kind of a nice, subtle flavor. And then I really like coffee, and I really like beer. So if you put them together and you get this tall, dark, and stout, a coffee stout, I thought it was great. And besides, I mean, it kind of keeps you, kind of keeps you guessing because it's sort of an upper. Well, also a downer. It's sort of an upper. Well, kind of a downer. You know, keep your body guessing, right? Coffee and alcohol. So I hope you like the beers, Holiday, and hope to see you in some of the breweries in Golden. So I think Frank has proven that he loves his job as the beer ambassador. So, all right. So our speaker tonight is Mike Bell from the National Park Service. He's an ecologist with the Air Quality Department or Division in the Park Service. And Mike's actually been a frequent patron of uh, Beer Talks. He comes here a lot. So you may have seen him in the audience, but uh, we were really excited when he offered to, to give this talk. And he's going to talk about different types of factors that are impacting resources in the natural park system with a focus on air quality and air pollutants. And I just wanted to give a little context. I've been fortunate enough in uh, my work to work with people from the Park Service for uh, a number of projects. And through that, I really gained an appreciation for how hard and how challenging it is to 
protect the resources within our national park system. And the National Park Service Organic Act was uh, passed by Congress in 1916, and what it establishes, among other things, is the responsibility of the Park Service to conserve the resources in park lands. And by resources, we're talking scenic and cultural and historic and, of course, the natural resources to conserve those so that they can be fully enjoyed by future generations. And it's not just a matter of protecting those resources against the impacts of activities that happen within a park unit, but also from the impacts of activities that are happening outside of a park unit. And some of the resources they protect are really susceptible over large landscapes to impacts. And I think Mike's going to talk a little bit about some of those with, with respect to climate change. And you mentioned invasive species and then, of course, in the air quality arena. So turn it over to Mike. Come on up. And thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, before I get started with the talk about science, I first want to introduce myself a little bit um, in depth because I don't want you to think of me as uh, a government employee up here telling you how to live your lives, but someone who's dedicated their life to understanding how our natural systems work. So I basically grew up outside. And I'll, I'll note, too, that for those of you who can't see the slides, most of them are just pictures of national parks. They're not... Uh, anything data rich or anything so <laughs> I basically grew up outside on the beaches of Florida going through the mountains um, sticking my hands in every hole that I could find trying to um, figure out what was what was here and what was there got bit by almost every insect that you could you could find snakes lizards everything else I could bring home I did put in a little canister waited for it to either die or for my mom to throw it out before it died <laughs> Um, eventually, I got out of Florida um, to the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it was the first time, if anyone's ever been to Florida, it's super flat, that I got to see over the tops of the trees and got to see out into the distance. I didn't really understand the concept of views or vistas at that point, but you can even tell here that there's air pollution that's kind of blotting out how far you can see. It's kind of... Um, it was amazing for us, and I remember my brothers and I, like the first time standing on this ledge of a cliff, just throwing rocks over the edge, and they would just disappear and go away. It's like, where are they going? And hopefully there wasn't anyone hiking under there, but I always remember the, this joyful moment. <laughs> In moving to California when I was 12, we made a stop through the Grand Canyon, and while I look relatively unimpressed in this picture, I remember looking out and seeing like these red rocks, these giant chasms, this like, completely different environment for the first time. And just being like dumbstruck by like, this was the same country that I lived in. All we knew of California in the West at that time may have been the beginnings of 90210, may have been from our encyclopedias. It was, uh, but nothing really prepared us for like the Western expanse. So when we moved there, my mom had taken a job with uh, the Nature Conservancy running a nature reserve. I really quickly started just following her around on her heels, picking up rocks when she was doing it, helping her move plants from one side to the other, really kind of understanding how management of this natural system works. Um, I also discovered the desert in the West. This is from Joshua Tree National Park with my brothers the first time. My first kind of like trip to a national park um, space. And it really, um, I just connected with this idea of, of uh, 
preserving large tracts of land. It kind of gave me this concept of this is something that I could do for a living. I can actually work at a place like this. Um, so after going to school in Santa Barbara, I got an internship at Yellowstone National Park um, on, on top of dressing up like a bear for the 4th of July parade. I also <laughs> patrolled the, uh, the roadside spraying weeds. And while it sounded like a relatively boring job at the time, I got to be at that interface of people and the park. Most people who come to Yellowstone stay in the pullouts, stay in um, those high high-use areas. And so while we would walk past there, we get to talk to people and like, see, how are you experiencing the park? What's important to you? What do you really want to see here? Um, and the experience was like, was so uh, fundamental to my growth that I ended up going to Craters of the Moon National Monument afterwards. I focused more in working with native plants there, collecting seeds and traveling around the park, and had some just, like, amazing mentors who um, made me understand how parks function and how they work. This is a really cool place because it was a super small park where I had lunch with the superintendent almost every day and really got an understanding like, where my remedial research at the time was being implemented into park policy and the other challenges that were going on. So it was more than just saying, we have science, do something with it. They're like, yeah, but we also have visitors and we have maintenance issues and we have this and just seeing it all kind of in that big picture in a small place. From there, I went back to Joshua Tree, and I was like, like living my dream of working in this park that I had uh, frequented so much as a kid. And I told people at the time, and it's relatively true, that my job was to hike around the park and look at plants. Like I just basically found a dot on a map, went out to it, and identified all the plants that were in that area. And came to like to learn like 500 of the 800 plants that were there. Just like knew why everything grew where it was, but also understood the limits of my knowledge of that just knowing where something grows wasn't enough to restore it to how it was or to um, integrate that to the greater management of the park. Like a lot of what we did failed. A lot of my, uh, my efforts were unsuccessful. And so that led me to go back to grad school where I'm back at Joshua Tree National Park. I had intended to study uh, conservation and um, to a, a more focused degree, but found out that the air pollution that had been choking my lungs my whole childhood coming out of LA was actually impacting the plants and animals in Joshua Tree as well. And so what I was doing here is looking at, um, looking at flowers that are growing under high nitrogen deposition, high air pollution, and seeing like how that's changing um, over time. Um, and then, so one of the cool things from here is that, like, as I went back to school, I'd sit around the dinner table with my mom when I went to back to visit. And it's like, oh, mom, I'm doing this. My friend's doing this. Like, it's so cool. She's like, yeah, but I can't actually use this because you're going out and you're pulling all of these plants in a square meter section. It's like, I can't pull all of the weeds in my park. Like, that's or my, my reserve. That's not possible. So, yes, your science is cool, and yes, your ideas are cool, but... You, like, this isn't an, like a management application. There's no way to actually do this in real life. And I was like, Mom, like, don't be such a, don't be mean. <laughs> These are big ideas. And it's like, you're just like, you're stuck in the past. And she's like, yeah, but I also, like, have a very small budget. I have one person to help me with this. Like, this isn't feasible. So it was really cool at that point, just, like, having those back and forths with her and, like, having, getting that professional relationship as well. And I feel like my, um, my career peaked in my postdoc after I got my PhD in botany, where um, 
my mom was sitting in the audience of one of the presentations that I gave, and I could just see her beaming the whole time, like, oh, I'm so proud of you. Then we get home, and she's like, yeah, we can't use that. And it's like, ah, oh, can't win. So anyway, after, after my postdoc, I ended up um, coming back to the National Park Service, where I, I work now, bringing with me 37 years of being outside, 25 years of living in conservation, 19 years of studying the earth, and 14 years of studying the national parks. And so... While young, um, I was able to, like, my whole life kind of built towards this moment of doing this. And now, instead of standing on the outside of the, of the Grand Canyon, I'm deep within it, like, trying to figure out what's going on from the top to the bottom. And which brings me to the National Park Service. Like, it's, it's been an honor to work for this branch of the government. Like, it's, a, it's cool to be a scientist with a respected voice in the community where people look to us as like conservation enthusiasts and people who are doing the things right. There's a lot that we do, um, like a, a lot of our notable parks are those that uh, feature the, the biggest and the best things. So in Yellowstone National Park, there's bisons and there's geysers. In arches, we have arches, surprisingly enough, like a fifth grader named it. Uh, the Yosemite Valley um, in Half Dome and Glacier National Park and the, and the fading glaciers that we're now struggling to, to go through with climate change. But I think what's most important is that the, um, the 25,000 employees who work for the National Park Service, like their, their main mission, their main goal is connect people with the parks. It's to um, identify that these areas are places where that are generally unperturbed by man and unperturbed by the uh, um, out, like the, the d development of outside areas. And while not perfect by any means, we're doing our best to both communicate what these what the, what the uh, open space means to people and what it uh, and how it how it's been changed over time. And as Karen had mentioned in the beginning, the mission of the National Park Service is to preserve unimpaired, like unchanged from the time that it started, the natural and cultural um, resources and values of these sites for, for current and future generations. And as a member of the Air Resources Division, like, like studying air pollution, it's figuring out how man is impacting these parks from the outside, even though... Um, Inside, we're doing our best to keep things as they are. So how do we figure out uh, how, what is happening? And this is where the science comes in. Rangers in the National Park Service, scientists in the National Park Service, study the plants and animals intently of what, what is here, how is it changing, and um, how does it compare to other parks in the areas? So there's four different types of science like, that I've effectively categorized for this. First, we have thing one is in a place. What is here? And I think it's really important to understand the natural history of a place. What is here? What was here? And um, because if you don't know what's here, you don't know what changes. The second is how two things interact. So if you have thing one and thing two, and this could be a pl one plant versus a second plant. This could be an animal and another animal. This could be the plant in the soil. Um, something's going to happen to thing one, something else is going to happen to thing two. When those things get offset very quickly, usually it's a sign that something bad's happening. The, the parks in general being a stable, are, are a stable system where things change, but things change slowly. The third thing is looking at 
um, thing one over distance. So where in the park does thing one occur versus some other place in the park? Does thing one occur in this park but not in a, a local park or not in a national forest outside of it? So really kind of understanding the limits of where something exists. Because when you find the limit of where it exists, you understand more about how it grows and what it needs to grow. And when we're talking about things like climate change, it's important to understand what its current range is versus what, it range, what its range might be in the future. The fourth is looking at thing one over a gradient of some kind. So we're looking at precipitation, or we're looking at air pollution, or we're looking at temperature. And again, finding more, more information out about these things that are occurring in the parks. And um, when you know, the, again, those thresholds of where they do and don't occur, you get a better sense of uh, when those thresholds change, where the things are going to move, and prepare us for the future. So the science is only part of it. Once we have the science, it's important to communicate what's happening to the public. Um, this is from Cuyahoga Valley National Park, my friend Doug. He um, was taking kids out, searching for different plants, searching for butterflies, searching for bugs, and uh, getting um, the kids excited, getting the public excited about what's happening in the park. Not just driving by and seeing the waterfall, but seeing the diversity, seeing the other things that are happening. It's, um, I feel like the Junior Ranger program of the, for, through the National Park Service is one of the most exciting ways that we are really activating this future generation of uh, um, environmental stewards. Getting them in the parks, talking to people, looking at things, and uh, really understanding what's happening. So when we're talking about science, it ends up being a lot harder to uh, differentiate or to, it's not as simple as just this thing is here and this thing is not here. This, this diagram is a lot of boxes and arrows. The boxes and arrows aren't important, but all these boxes and arrows basically mean how does a plant grow? And most of the time a scientist will study one box or one arrow. And one of the, the challenging things is to um, figure out how those boxes and arrows uh, relate to one another in um, space and time. This makes me think of my least favorite quote that I see on the internet at least once every month, which is, <laughs> a plant doesn't care about other plants or like what other plants around it are doing, it just blooms. This diagram is basically saying that is not true. Plants are, are concerned about what other plants are doing because it matters how much water there is. It matters how much of the, the, the resources there are. It matters how much light there is. It matters like what time of year it is. All of these things go into the effect of how, how plants bloom. And while most of my friends often say, Mike, why are you ruin, ruining this beautiful thing? This is something that we enjoyed. This inspired me. And it's like, but I think of it as like a much more beautiful thing, knowing this non-sentient being is able to like sense its surroundings and really understand what's going on. It's leading it to, uh, to do this huge thing in life. And sometimes it chooses not to bloom. Sometimes it blooms just a little bit and makes like three flowers just to bloom again next year. And sometimes things are perfect. But other times, a bunch of invasive grasses come in and it can't bloom because everything's taken away from it. And that's just life sometimes. But that's where we come in. Because when the invasive grasses come in, we take them away. And we try to provide the opportunity for this plant to bloom rather than um, leaving it to these, these things that humans have, have 
brought into this natural environment. And so this is from my time at Joshua Tree. Again, all of the, the big green heavy things are the bad plants. The little purple flowers are the good ones. And pulling out the bad ones, giving space to the, the good ones to grow. So then moving up from there. So this is, that's basically like science at the park level. We have some of the best scientists, people who, who work in parks and make it their home, know where everything exists, know where everything grows, and um, have seen it over time, seen it with high rains, seen it with low rains. But once you leave the boundaries of their park, they're relatively unfamiliar. So the Park Service is then organized into regions. So these four pictures, while they look relatively similar, all alpine lakes, all above treeline, the top left is from Sequoia Kings Canyon, looking out over Mount Whitney, or from Mount Whitney. The top right is from Glacier National Park, about 1,000 miles northeast um, in, uh, what are those, Iceberg Lake. There we go, that's what those are called. Um, bottom left is Grand Teton National Park, and the bottom right is Long's Peak in Rocky Mountain. So all these places look relatively the same. And a lot of the responses that we see ecologically are the same because they have the same kind of influences over them, whether they be precipitation, whether they be the species that are um, uh, living there. Um, and so those regional people in the National Park Service really help to um, synthesize that message from similar spaces. It gives us that... Um, like the, the umbrella approach of like, okay, like this is happening here, this is happening here, and so we can expect this will happen here when things change. If we have an invasive plant um, that comes in at one, one of these that starts invading a park, we'll be prepared for it in the next park. And it works out really well having this hierarchical structure that helps us kind of communicate down. And then on top of that, we have the National Science Offices, which is where I work, and um, the Air Resources Division. And so, just on a, a quick aside, on top of all the natural resources that the National Park Service protects, we have about 270 units that are um, natural resource focused. And then we have another uh, 147 um, kind of cultural and memorial type of, of park units. And so a lot of the uh, memorials and monuments in Washington, D.C. are also protected under the banner of the National Park Service, but not at, but it's at a different level, or just like with a different focus, being around telling the story of American history and cultural history and stuff as well. So back to um, the main story. The, uh, so from this national perspective, um, we integrate science from across the country around geology, biology, water, air, um, climate change, and look at patterns that we see in certain regions, look at patterns that we see across the United States, and help manage some of the regulations that are put in place by the EPA or by other agencies to implement um, consistently across the Park Service. And so I work with the Air Resources Division, and our mission is to breathe, breathe have visitors breathe easy, see far, and let nature thrive. And this is from Yellowstone National Park, um, where I was happy to be able to breathe easy and see far on this day. So it was great. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to the, my coworkers who work with the Air Resources Division. These are both people who work in Lakewood with me, as well as um, 
rangers from across the country who work in parks or at the regional level trying to implement these, these spaces. Colleen, you're right here. So when we're talking about air resources, the main sources of air pollution come from automobiles, industrial pollution, and agriculture. And unfortunately, these are things we all need to survive. So some type of pollution source is, evident, is going to be present no matter, um, no matter what we do. But the choices we make in these spaces a lot can influence how much pollution parks see. First, the good news. Um, since the Clean Air Act of 1970 was put into place, uh, the aggregate of like, the six most common pollutants have dropped by 73% um, in that time. On top of that, our gross domestic product has increased 262%. Our vehicle miles traveled has increased almost 200%. Energy consumption has increased 50%. Um, basically, we're doing more of everything, but pollution's going down. And so this is basically kind of saying regulations work. Not only do the regulations decrease air pollution, but they also allow us to grow as, as a country. So we can do both. We can um, reduce pollutions and we can increase everything else that we do and still leave, uh, live a bountiful life. Now the bad news is that there's still work to do. We're still not quite below the threshold of what's happening. Um, so first, looking at breathing, breathing easy. This is basically meant that we want to keep um, the amount of pollution below the standard that affects people's health when they're in the park. The main pollutant of concern here is ozone. And this is our map from the current year of showing the number of days in exceedance of the current threshold of um, ozone values set by the EPA. So when the when the, the, that threshold is exceeded, people who are doing heavy activities in the park are at risk in some way of, um, of health threats, and especially people with sensitive lungs and asthma and such. As you can see, Southern California is the, the biggest culprit or the biggest parks that we have concerns with. These are Joshua Tree, Sequoia Kings Canyon, Mojave, Yosemite, all being impacted by the Los Angeles Air Basin as well as the uh, Central Valley of California as well. Um, the second is CIFAR. Invisibility is what most people think about when they go to parks. You go to a park to stand on the edge of the world and look out into the grandeur. And this has improved a lot over time, but still we do have bad days. So these are just three days apart in 2014. This is from Mount Rainier. And we're getting an influx of pollution from the city of Seattle that's preventing you from seeing far into the distance. We had the same thing happen around here, all of the bad ozone days that you, all of a sudden you can't really see the front range. You can't see Long's Peak out in the distance. And uh, it's unfortunate because the mountains are why a lot of us live here, a lot, why a lot of us want to be here. And so generally speaking, the East Coast parks have the most significant concern around this. As I'll show you in a moment, a lot of this in the Midwest is coming from agriculture. A lot of it in the farther east is coming from power plants. And uh, we've improved a lot in, in this area, but still these areas of significant concern. And this is where I spend most of my time, letting nature thrive, really understanding what's happening at, this, at the interface of the air and the plants and the water. We have um, 
three main pollutants that we're looking at. Um, the first is sulfur. The main source of sulfur, sulfur comes from industrial power plants. And that, this is a map from 1986 showing concentrations of sulfur deposition across the United States. Back then, we had a lot, it, we didn't have all the fully, these um, power plants fully regulated. We were using almost full, um, fully coal power to get our energy. And we really didn't have the, uh, the technology to reduce pollution in these. But looking into 2012, most of that's gone. We still have a couple hot spots um, in, in like that eastern Midwest area and the East Coast. But generally speaking, we've improved sulfur deposition like almost 400% in a lot of areas. Unfortunately, the amount of acid that was dropped on the, the ground during those times was significant. And if you think of, um, and, and accumulated over time. So if you think of like Drano as one of the strongest acids you can have. Like you put that, obviously what that does when you put it in your toilet or in a clogged drain is it just destroys everything, takes away all life and just and clears out your pipes. Think of that like if you're just dripping Drano slowly over time into a water source. It's not going to have much of an effect at first, but eventually it's going to start scrubbing out some of the algae. It's going to start scrubbing out some of the other things that um, the fish require to survive. Eventually it's going to get acidic enough that um, the fish start to die. And they're doing this in the soils as well. It's going to leach out all those positive things that trees need to grow. And so back in the 80s especially, we were just seeing die-offs in a lot of these areas. And now, even with it gone, all of that's been leached out. All of it's gone. So it's really hard to, like, to, re, to um, restore those ecosystems to be anything what, as to what they were. So it's one of the challenges we face that even while this is gone, we're still dealing with the effects of the past. And so kids who come visit the park aren't going to be able to catch as many fish. And um, the... Um, aren't going to have that, that natural park experience that we want them to have. Um, the next is nitrogen. And nitrogen comes from two main sources, or a couple of sources. The first is power plants and mobile emissions. So you'll see this one looked a lot like the um, initial map that we saw, where we're seeing a lot of deposition in the Northeast. And most of that goes away. Um, there are like hot spots in California and a couple of other areas of the desert where um, the nitrogen's deposited during the summertime when there's peak uh, um, car movement around. But for the most part, we've reduced this again to a point where there's not as much of an effect as there used to be, but nitrogen also stays in the soil. And the way nitrate works in nitrogen in general is like when you fertilize your garden. When you fertilize it, some things end up growing really fast. And as I'll show you in a bit, some of those things are bad things that really disrupt the, the function of the system. The other thing is ammonium. Ammonium, is like the main source of ammonium comes from agriculture. And so this is released from the soil when you fertilize either with too much or too little. Unfortunately, this is the opposite map. Where in 1986, it wasn't that bad. We weren't overloading the soils yet. And in 2012, it's gotten worse. And you see a couple of hot spots, like on the far east. Like these are all are uh, pig farms in North Carolina. And then we have cities like Salt Lake City here, which um, is basically due to an inversion that occurs from all the nitrogen being emitted from uh, cars that are in the area. 
So the fertilizing effect of nitrogen kind of looks like this. This is back at Joshua Tree. This is from my PhD research. And that dark red area is where we put extra nitrogen to try to um, see what would happen if this continues over time. All the dark red that you see in that box are invasive plant species that um, grew faster and outcompeted the native plant species because we added extra fertilizer. In its extreme, it looks like this. And this is just, just outside of the park boundary. But in the past, with, when that's not there, if any of this caught on fire, if lightning struck this one bush here, it just burns by itself. But when you have this, like, this layer of fuel, the fire can then spread to the next bush and then the next bush. And it ends up creating these large, intense fires um, that spread a lot faster and farther than we expected them to. And the desert isn't prepared to recover from that. Um, and so, quickly, this is, these are lichen that occur on the trees. And so most of the ways that we measure nitrogen pollution is through um, filters and buckets and just getting a sense of um, actually measuring what's either in the sky or what's coming down from the sky. The hard part with that is it, it takes a lot of time and effort because you have to collect the buckets every time it rains. You have to collect the filters every time they um, are exposed. And you can only do it in a couple spots per park or a couple spots across a region. Lichen grow everywhere. And these are what we like to call our canary in the coal mine for measuring deposition. Since a lichen grows on the side of a tree, it gets all of its nutrients from the outside. And meaning that it needs a very specific type of area to grow. And once you change that, once you increase the nitrogen, once you increase the sulfur, things start dying quickly and other, like some species die quickly, some grow faster. And we're able to like go through a forest and look at what, what's growing where and you can really understand how much pollution is actually in that area. And then doing advanced scientific lab, lab stuff, you... Uh, Science things. Um, you, get, you can get a better sense of other pollutants as well. And it, it really allows us to get a fine-scale representation of what's happening. So how, are we gonna, how, how do we use this for management? Um, what this graph is showing is basically all the different things that change um, as nitrogen deposition, as pollution increases on the x-axis. So each of the things as they go up are a little less sensitive to um, air pollution. And if, let's just say, right now we're here at this current deposition level where trees are affected, lakes are affected, and soils are affected, what, what does that mean for management of the park, and what, what can we do about it? Um, and let's just say we want to get down to here, where it's like minimizing the effects to the resources in the park, rather than moving up. And so we know that we're, if, if more things start to happen, we're at risk of losing fish and, and, and plants and everything else. So at Rocky Mountain, we actually have this really cool project going on where we're integrating with the state, with the agriculture industry, and with the oil and gas developers to try to minimize the amount of pollution that they're all emitting that's actually getting into the park. And so together, using the, um, the thresholds of what's being affected, kind of set a, a, a goal of about half the amount of deposition that's occurring right now for 2032 in the future. And developing best management practices and um, to help to help get us there, and so it's been it's been pretty exciting there. 
So at the regional level, kind of integrating all this together, when we see something changing at one park, we're able to kind of expand that out to other forests in other areas. And so let's say we, we, we measured forest changing in Rocky. This is where those similar forests would occur across the western United States. While at a national level, we kind of get to the... Um, we're overlaying those maps that I showed you of deposition earlier on those thresholds to understand where the highest risk of things changing are. So overlaying this with parks, we can, we can identify to a park manager and be like, hey, we, we're concerned about these, these resources in your park. You should do some more surveys. You should um, figure out what's going on. So as we kind of conclude, what can you do? What can we do as people to help improve the air quality of the and so what I've, what, the main way I've been thinking about this recently is thinking back to how I was when I was a, uh, a five-year-old kid playing in the woods where I wasn't just playing in nature. Like, I felt like I was nature. I was part of this whole madness that was going on, finding the bugs, finding out where everything was. And I think a lot of us, like, we, we, we've disconnected from that space in a lot of ways. We... We go to work in our buildings, we have our energy, like we get our energy, but we don't really think about the cost, the outside costs of this, and we place ourselves outside of the natural system. But if we put ourselves in there and realizing that we want energy, yes, we can get that, but there are negative effects that happen from there. We want food, yes, we can get that, but there are other negative things that are happening because of that. And so I think it's really important just to be aware of where we fit into the puzzle, that there are positive benefits and negative benefits from base or negative consequences of everything that we choose to do. And so my ideas, not sanctioned by the National Park Service, just my personal ideas, are A, you eat less meat. Uh, animal agriculture is the, the, main, like the, the biggest polluter of uh, climate change producing molecules um, in the world. Basically, the, the animals and high, um, the types of things they're eating lead to production of methane. The second is use less energy. Yes, it's easy to say power companies, make more solar power, do this. But it's really on us just to use less. If we use less energy, use less plastics, they don't have a use for that oil, therefore we don't need the oil. We don't need the energy to do that. And it's really for us to, to make those choices and not them. It's easy to put it on someone else to do later. Um, the other is ride a bike. Um, try to minimize your, um, the transportation you use. The, uh, um, I'm sure you see all the signs up right now. We've had ozone warnings almost every day since the beginning of uh, April, I think it was. And the more that we cannot um, be in our cars and, and be creating pollutants, the better off we're going to be, just for, both for our local and um, uh, regional areas. But yeah, just like be, be that change you want to see and understand what the, what, how your actions are responding. And so with that, I'll close it out and I know we're going to take a little break and then I'll take some questions. Okay, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I don't know if everybody knows that we do a podcast of each of our Beer Talks presentations, and that's what all this extra material over here is. So when you ask a question, Mike, I'm going to ask for you to repeat the question, and I will just nag you, okay? I'll do my best. You do your best. Okay, and make your questions easy so he can repeat them. And I have one I'm going to start with. 
and he's asking his own question first. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. We'll, we'll do the Q&A for about 15 minutes. Uh, real quick, I have one first, and then I'll get to you. Um, so someone who had to leave said, asked me how we interact with the Forest Service, the EPA, and the BLM, and if we have the same um, thresholds of change and how we inter like deal with regulations. And actually working with other federal agencies has been like the most rewarding part of my job, is especially seeing all of the disruption in the higher administration. Um, my EPA and Forest Service colleagues are the best people who I work with. And what we're basically trying to do is understand how these things are all changing across boundaries. So not only in the national parks, but also in the national forests, also in BLM lands, so that um, we, we're, we have one set of rules kind of for all, all the changes that are happening. And then working with the EPA, and it's changed a little bit in the last two years, but our main contacts are still very good at integrating the science that we're all doing on the outside to the research, to implementing into the research they're doing to set future regulations on how to protect the natural resources that we have. So, question? Yeah, I want to piggyback on that. Yeah. But maybe two lenses. One is you referenced some climate change earlier, mm -hmm. and the other one is just tied to the EPA, tied to the administration. It has funding been cut, or do you have to follow a certain kind of agenda that, that may go counter to your, your, your own research? So, the question was what was the first part again? Sorry. Oh, climate change. <laughs> oh, climate change. Okay. So, Yes. Ooh, um, well, I'll plug now my posters over here. I brought four posters that we've created through our office. One is on climate change and air pollution. One is on visibility. One is just general air quality issues in parks, and one is about plants and parks. So, lots of like posters, lots of information for that kind of stuff. The National Park Service. Uh, the question is looking at: um, Do we have any issues? talking about or dealing with climate change and um, how has funding um, affected the work that we've done. So the climate change question is the National Park Service still has a climate change response program. We have had very little pushback on act doing work around responding to the fact that the climate is changing. As the National Park Service, we don't need to take a stand on why the climate is changing. We just know that it is. And so that it provides us that opportunity to prepare for um, changes that are occurring within the park management scale. So it's probably most challenging for our interpreters who work at parks who are dealing with these issues and when visitors come in who are denying some of the science that's happening. But from our perspective, we're able, we're, we're working hard to integrate both climate change and air pollution into this greater model of predicting what's happening in the future. As far as funding is concerned, we have, haven't really had any cuts in our, um, in our budgets, like personally. We've The biggest challenge has been replacing scientists and people in the office who have left. <laughs> I look at former coworker who has not come back. Or we have not been able to replace. But um, and our voices haven't really changed very much. One of the 
benefits of having so much conflict from higher administrators is that it makes us tell better stories. It makes us reflect on ourselves of what have we failed to do in the past to connect to the public and to connect to um, the visitors in a way that they that they don't see this as relevant. They don't see this as true. Because if we have all this great data, but no one understands it, why does it matter? And so it's been a fun experiment to try to like do things like this, try to find a way to communicate what I do in a different way to different people and not just get caught up in the data slides and, and this little incremental change that's happening, but just like, how does this affect the parks? How does this affect people? How are we all integrated into the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this data is from Lock Vale. Oh yeah, the question is um, looking a little deeper. Like the Rocky Mountain National Park has one of the longest running nitrogen deposition, so air pollution deposition experiments and measurements in the entire country. And this, the amount of deposition being linked both to water quality um, um, and vegetation quality um, across the world. And so the data from one of my slides is from the Lockvale station that goes back at least until 1984. Um, you can see from this that it's been relatively consistent over time. It increased in the late 90s. And this is where we, we're trying to work with the local um, um, polluters to minimize what's actually getting into the park. And so Rocky is kind of unique in that most of the pollution comes in during the summertime in a few updraft events. Like, so the storm today came from the east and brought all of the pollution from the city up into the mountains and rained out into the mountains. Those are like the important days for us to realize like when these things are going to happen and try to minimize the amount of pollution that's happening in the city on those days. Um, basically, based off this, it's. We're seeing some changes in the Lockvale system. We're seeing some nitrogen being leached out into the waters that are going downstream and impacting the ecosystems. But generally speaking, it's good. It's not great. The alpine um, herbs are changing a little bit, but it's only native species that are growing a little bit faster. There's no invasives coming in yet. So it's modified and modified in a way that we really can't do much in terms of uh, restoration. So that's why we need to minimize the amount of pollution coming in. Yeah, the question is, how is this relate to the, like, the impacts of overuse? And the technical answer is 
most of the areas we're concerned about are the areas that are off of the main use areas that people access. That air pollution is a disturbance to an undisturbed area. So we only have a trail through this, let's just say this space, but all this space over here is being impacted by air pollution. All those things are changing without people. And so they're very different disturbances to, um, to the parks themselves. My personal answer in overuse is that I don't believe in overuse of national parks, is that these places are, exist for people to come and understand nature. I believe that the national parks are underfunded and that the funding does not align with the amount of use that they get. Because if we had the infrastructure in place to serve the people who came there, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having that much, uh, they wouldn't be having as much of an impact. We'd be able to provide more education opportunities of environmental ethics and conservation ethics as they're experiencing these places that I hold dear to my heart. New regulations? Yeah. Okay. So the question is, um, I showed a graph looking at the impact, the positive impact of air quality regulations. Are there any new regulations that could be put into effect to improve air quality? And I think the biggest thing from the maps that I showed is ammonia from agriculture. It's, we are there are increasing emissions coming from both animal and um, like vegetable agriculture. It is possible to use less fertilizers to re, like to that would lead to more nitrogen retention in the soil, less air pollution coming off of it. But it is on it. It costs money to put in new um, procedures. And I think it's important that we, and also the, the agriculture business is huge for the economy. It's huge for people's livelihoods. And it's a very challenging thing to add a new regulation to. I think it's something that needs to be explored and to be looked at, but by having the, showing more direct responses to it um, is all we can do to help our cause to show that that's important. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular that has you worried as far as any of those deregulations or emphasis on things like coal or other stuff, uh, things like that? So the question is based on current emphasis on deregulations and what I'm concerned about in, um, with the, the current direction things are going. I would say just because it just happened, my biggest concern is the, the reduction in car emission uh, or car um, emission. Fuel is, yeah, fuel standards. There we go. Um, California, obviously, from the maps showing that that's the, the leading source of pollution from cars, but also leading the way in fuel standards. And by cutting those back, we're not doing 
it, it doesn't really help anyone. Everybody, everybody, everybody wins with better fuel standards. And, um, and obviously pushing to more towards coal, trying to save an industry that isn't economically feasible is, uh, seems odd from when you look at the data. Yes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> you know, I was going to be more blunt and just ask how much damage could be done in four years or eight. So what are your other concerns? <laughs> I, I, the question is, like, what are my concerns, like long-term concerns from this deregulation? And... I'm a hopeful person, and I know who I work with. I know who's doing the job, who's working on the ground. I know how integrated the scientific community is behind the scenes. I know how good the employees who work at federal agencies outside the top still are, how many people who aren't abandoning ship, and just her holding out hope, waiting to be able to influence in the way they've been able to influence in the past. And... There are a lot of us, it, is, it makes us angry and it makes us fight. And it's, it's awesome to have that drive. It's awesome to work with people who have that drive. And I guess I want you all to know that we still exist who have that drive and who are going to do our best to, to minimize what can happen and will happen. But there will be a dip in progress. And there will be um, people emboldened to continue polluting where it's, it's unnecessary. So I'm hoping, again, try to connect people back to their natural environment, connect people to the world at large, and make sure that we understand um, what we're actually doing and what we're doing outside of our, our little bubble of existence. Because most of our food, most of our energy comes from far away from any place we ever see. And other people are suffering because of it. Okay, so the question is about using new forms of communication to influence the thinking of political appointees um, in general. It's outside of my daily work, but our contact who works in D.C. comes and talks with us a couple times a year, and it's his job to kind of infiltrate the political sphere in D.C. And basically everything he says is that people want to protect their parks in their states. And when you can communicate direct causes to, direct impacts to their place that they call home, that their constituents call home, as well as to the um, expanding factors to like the ecosystem services. So while like, someone in 
who lives in California probably isn't interested in talking about invasive plants. But when you're able to link invasive plants to fire and to loss of homes and to loss of habitat for birds and other mammals that they're interested in, potentially loss, loss of um, things someone wants to hunt, it makes it a lot more, it allows you to make that connection. It allows you to make, um, make people understand that this matters to something that they care about. And it's unfortunate because it sounds like the things that people think in a one-on-one conversation are not the things that those people either vote for or say out loud when they're talking to other, um, to the greater audiences. And I think that's a challenge that we all face sometimes when dealing with sensitive issues or something that you maybe believe in behind the scenes, but it's just the fact of the matter is that people vote together even when their individual interests are being impacted negatively. Just one last question. Um, so the question is around light pollution. We have a whole division on natural sounds and night skies that focuses on light pollution, looking at, um, we have certified night sky parks, um, basically where all of the lighting on the buildings is set to go straight down, does not impact the night sky at all. We have, um, or just lighting doesn't exist, and we try to minimize that so that we can maintain bo- like both the natural darkness for visitors as well as for the animals that live there but it's been really cool seeing that program grow and really understanding the uh how much impact uh, light pollution and noise pollution are having on the wildlife that exists in the park but thank you all for coming this was great and i appreciate it